Over the last 40 years, we've seen a new oligarchy arise in the United States on the foundation of Reaganism. We don't talk a whole lot about oligarchy in our day-to-day, in the, the writing that we do, and even in this podcast, but it is very much the same mechanism. Wealthy people have always done everything they can to hold on to power and to enhance their power. And if you really do want to solve this problem, you are actually going to have to eat the rich. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. Today we're going to talk about oligarchies. So an oligarch is a very rich business leader with a great deal of political influence. And joining me today is the host of this podcast, Nick Hanauer, who is a very rich business leader (laughs) with a great deal of political influence. How are you doing, Nick? I'm good. Thank you for pointing that out, Paul. Very sure, kind sure. of you. Anytime, yeah. 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 Well, as our resident oligarch, no, I think I'm really excited today to get to talk to our guest, Tom Hartman. He's the number one progressive radio talk show host in the US and is a best selling author. And he has a new cool book out called The Hidden History of American Oligarchy Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. Tom comes at it, I think, uh, in his book, a slightly different way than we do on our podcast generally, where we talk in more, I think, more precise terms about economics. But I think we're in agreement with his generalized thesis, which is that absolute power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. (laughs) Right? Right. When you concentrate power in the hands of the few, however you do it, and in a commercial society, you tend to do it with economic power, uh, that's bad for everyone else. And uh, I think that the inequality that the oligarchy that we live in represents or implies is definitely tearing the society apart in ways which are becoming more and more obvious to even the casual bystander. Even some Republicans in our country today may be, may be starting to think, jeepers, creepers, we got we to manage this thing a little bit better. Yeah, and it's interesting because we don't talk a whole lot about oligarchy in our day-to-day, in the the writing that we do, and, and even in this podcast, but it is very much the same mechanism. Trickle-down economics, the $50 trillion that has been uh, taken out of Americans' you know paychecks and into the, the wealthy, this is all still oligarchy. It's just yeah. uh, Hartman in his book is talking about it very clearly as what he believes is one of the leading problems of our time. Yeah. There's simply no doubt that the, you know, the enrichment of the few and the impoverishment of the many is driving to a great extent the shitstorm which is happening politically in our country. And, you know, one of the themes that we're going to need to explore and develop more in the podcast is the interrelationship between um, economic inequality and racism and white privilege and the ways in which the changing demographics and inequality is fueling this rage on the right and, let's face it, anger on the left. But there can be no doubt that oligarchs played a huge role in electing Donald Trump 
uh, know a ton of really rich people who don't give a rip about anything but themselves and thought, well, you know, more low taxes, yay, <laughs> mm -hmm. without ever considering that there may be a downside to that. And one of the things I loved about this book is it puts the oligarchy in a historical context. And there's yes, a lot of great stuff right. in here about slavery and indentured servitude all the way up to the prison state today and, and debt peonage, which is still going on in Mississippi and Alabama. And so that's one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was it put it all in historical context. You know, for me, I enjoy, uh, I don't enjoy, I appreciate, <laughs> for me, I appreciate knowing that there is, that this has happened before. Um, because yeah. if it's happened before and it's been overcome, then it can be overcome again. Yeah. The depressing part is that usually when it's overcome, there was a civil war or a world war, or some <laughs> conflagration that definitely was not pleasant to get through for most people. So the book covers a lot of history. So we thought we would share an excerpt from the audio version of the book that will get you up to speed on the role oligarchs have played in American policy and politics over the centuries. The transition from democracy to oligarchy usually starts with the very wealthy acquiring political power by buying influence with elected officials. They typically justify this with the belief that oligarchy is more stable and less messy than democracy, and that their success demonstrates that a sort of Darwinian process has chosen them to lead. From there, they begin to so completely control the mechanisms of information, the media, and campaigns financing campaigns directly as well as indirectly via third-party groups, that their agenda overwhelms the governing agenda. In the final stages, oligarchs themselves, or people so tightly aligned with them that they could only be called agents of particular oligarchs, rise up through seemingly democratic processes and take complete or near-complete control of government. From there, oligarchs typically begin to as Steve Bannon said, was the main goal of the Trump administration, deconstruct the administrative state, seizing control over and corrupting every subordinate agency of government, from those responsible for enforcing the laws and the courts, to regulatory agencies, to those controlling the nation's currency and economy. I'm Tom Harbin, the author of The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start by setting the stage. You break the history of American oligarchy into three phases. What are they? Well, there was the oligarchy of the, of the British and the monopoly over American commerce, largely uh, from the East India Company. We rose up and overthrew that oligarchy. Uh, in fact, the wealthiest families in, in uh, North America at the time, in the 1770s, were all aligned with the British. Uh, the Johnson family, for example, up in northern New York State, had a literal castle with over a thousand people that uh, worked for them, including a number of enslaved people, the people of all races who were, who were uh, there. You know, <laughs> it was bizarre. They left when the American Revolution happened, as did many of these very, very wealthy families. So that was the first phase. The second was with the invention of the cotton gin and the widespread distribution of it around the 1820s, those uh, southern plantations that were large enough at scale to be able to afford the machine, uh, which could do the one machine could do the work of 50 enslaved people in terms of uh, stripping the cotton 
seeds out of the cotton. Those large plantations that could afford a machine were able to very, very rapidly overwhelm, economically uh, overwhelm their competitors, uh, ran out of business most of the small cotton farms in the South, and you ended up with a new oligarchy rising during the period of uh, basically 1820 to 1840 in the South, about a generation, a generation, maybe two generations by 1860. And that oligarchy rigidified on the foundation of the police state that had already been established, which I write about in the first book in this series, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, that was put into place to preserve slavery. And those oligarchs rose up and, and challenged the United States itself. Uh, we defeated them in the Civil War and broke up that oligarchy. And, uh, you know, then we saw the rise of an oligarchy. There have been several of them, actually. We saw a rise of an oligarchy in the Roaring Twenties, uh, you know, came out of the Industrial Revolution. The Great Depression and the New Deal kind of uh, took an axe to that one. And now, over the last 40 years, we've seen a new oligarchy arise in the United States on the, on the foundation of Reaganism. So wealthy people have always done everything they can to hold on to power. And to, and to enhance their power. But how have uh, the ways in which they do that changed over time? Well, first of all, to define oligarchy, a democracy yeah. is ruled by the people. Oligarchy is ruled by the rich. So typically the way that the rich have extended and maintained oligarchy is through capture of government. Before a, a nation becomes a full-blown oligarchy, you have wannabe oligarchs emerging. And if the nation allows political bribery, then uh, it's pretty much a guaranteed thing within a generation or two. You will have substantial capture of government by the forces of great wealth in the nation. That happened here in the United States in 1976 in the uh, Buckley versus Vallejo decision when the Supreme Court legalized billionaires owning politicians, individual politicians. Two years later, in the uh, First National Bank versus Bellotti decision, the Supreme Court, a decision that was written by uh, Lewis Powell, the guy who was the brainchild yeah. of the whole modern era, uh, that Bellotti decision legalized corporations owning individual politicians. And then we had a decision just a few years ago that uh, the prior limit had been just basically a few hundred politicians that an individual billionaire or corporation could so completely subsidize that you could say that they owned them. Um, they turned that number to unlimited. So uh, the Supreme Court really set up oligarchy in the United States. And, you know, when they did that in 76 and 78, the Democratic Party was still awash in money from unions. And so they didn't much pay attention to it. But the Republican Party jumped on and uh, brought all this oligarchic money into the party, uh, thus propelling Reagan into the White House in 1980. And then they got real serious. So, you know, they dropped the top tax rate from 74% down to 25%. You know, just five years earlier, corporations had provided for a third of all the federal revenues. Right now it's 6%. You know, by the end of the Reagan revolution, I think it was down around 12 or 14%. Right. I don't have the exact in front of me. So, uh, you know, it's a process that's fairly predictable. We've seen it happen in country after country over the last couple of centuries. And uh, it's, it's reversible, but it can be very difficult to reverse. It typically takes a crisis in order to reverse it. Like the Great Depression stopped the Roaring Twenties, stopped, stopped the oligarchy that was arising. The Civil War stopped the oligarchy in the South. The Revolutionary War stopped the British oligarchy. So there are those who are suggesting that the pandemic might be the crisis that would provide for the end of this oligarchy. Others are suggesting 
that the Trump's overreach, his attempt to impose fascism in the United States is the crisis that's going to allow us to challenge our oligarchy. There are others who are suggesting that the stock market is so wildly inflated as a result of the Fed doing something it's literally never done in its history, which is uh, over the last four years or the last, excuse me, over the last year, it, they have literally invented out of thin air $7 trillion, uh, half of the entire GDP of the United States, or a little less than half, and used that money to buy corporate stocks and bonds. Never before has the Fed done this. In fact, there are those who argue that it's illegal. But in doing so, what they've done is they've propped up giant corporations. You know, they're, they're buying their debt, buying the bonds and the stock market by buying stocks, and thus have kept the market high. If the Fed pulls back from that, you're going to see a, a massive crash in the stock market. And, and even if the Fed doesn't pull back, stocks right now are so overvalued that just nature may take its course and crash the stock market. If that happens, then the current recession or depression for anybody who's not a white collar worker who can work from home is going to turn into a massive nationwide depression. And that might provide the impetus, uh, along with these other things, to flip America back out of oligarchy. We'll see. Do you think there's a direct line between the size of the income inequality gap and the increase in authoritarianism? As the rich get richer, do the poor get less free? Yes, everybody gets less free. Um, the people who have done a brilliant job of documenting this are uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett with the Equality Trust in the UK. And they've done research around the world as well as in the United States, literally state-by-state -state analysis. They've written several books on this. Uh, the spirit level, why inequality matters. And they've got a new one out. Um, and I don't recall the title right off the top of my head, but it had, it's something about inequality. And what they found is that what we're talking about here is not poverty, it's inequality. Right. Um, and what they found is that when society, as societies become more unequal, even if they don't have, even if they don't experience poverty, as societies become more unequal, Something breaks in people. We're, we're wired for equality. You put a bunch yes. of three-year-olds in the room and you give all the toys to one of the three-year-olds and the rest of them will freak out. We're wired for equality. So when inequality gets really huge, society starts to break down. Teenage pregnancies explode, venereal diseases go up, uh, homicides go up, all, all forms of crime go up, divorce goes up. Mental illness goes up, oddly enough, something that you would not yeah. think is necessarily culturally mediated. There's this whole spectrum of uh, social distress indicators that start uh, exploding and you know blinking red really fast as inequality passes through various stages. And right now uh, in the developed world, the United States is the most unequal society in, in the developed world. UK is number two. And everybody else is way, way behind. And, and the reason why, of course, is Reaganism and Thatcherism, you know, is uh, dropping the top right. tax bracket uh, from 74 percent here and from in the 60s in the UK down into the 20s right now here and the 30s for individuals. Um, and I'm not sure what it is in the UK, but, you know, same effect. And uh, Pickett and Wilkerson have documented that brilliantly. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, this aligns a lot with uh, our own thinking and research, which is that what people fail to acknowledge, I think certainly uh, academic economists do, is that humans are wetware, right? We are creatures, biological creatures 
uh, that evolved over millions of years. And our success is a consequence of high levels of cooperation, which in turn rely on very particular kinds of justice and fairness. Because you can't cooperate if things aren't fair and just. And that's why the differences, you know, stretching a society apart economically shreds the reciprocity norms that make, you know, social cohesion possible. And that's what, and we're witnessing that right now in our, in our country. Yeah. In fact, one of the most interesting that Wilkerson and Pickett have documented, yeah. and they can show state to state variations in the United States and country to country variations around the world, is that as inequality goes up, so trust, interpersonal trust and, go, and yeah. trust in government goes down. Absolutely. And so does happiness, right? Because, you know, right. human humans are status seeking creatures. And in a society where everybody's doing reasonably well and not too differently, even if you're relatively poor, people are relatively happier. But in a society where most people are doing terribly relative to a privileged few, people are pissed off. It's, it's not so much, I don't think, status as survival. And in that regard, I don't think we're wired that differently than other mammals. They did a fascinating study back in the 70s at Michigan State University. Um, squirrels typically make nests in trees, and you can see them in the winter when, you, when the trees lose their leaves. And so what these researchers did, there, were, there are all these hardwood trees all over the MSU campus. And what they did was they took a couple of the squirrels' nests and added leaves to them. They increased their size by about 20%, but they didn't increase the size of the rest of the squirrels' nests. And what they found was that over the next six months, all the other squirrel nests got larger too. In other words, all the squirrels had to keep up with the Joneses. And this was on piggybacked on research that they had been doing for years on the size of these squirrels' nests and other animal burrows relative to climate, because winter Michigan has pretty hard winters. And what they found was that the squirrels were actually predicting the, how severe the winter was going to be. So they'd build bigger nests when the winter was going to be harsher. And nobody to this day understands exactly how squirrels know that. But there's a lot of things that they're probably paying attention to. Um, changes in atmospheric pressure or precipitation or whatever. God only knows. But the squirrels can kind of predict it. So when the squirrels noticed that some of the other squirrels had bigger nests, they at some level just assumed, oh my God, Ralph over there knows something about the winter that's coming that I don't, I better get ready. Yeah. So we have this instinct wired into us. This is part of mammalian DNA. And so when we see people who are living wildly uh, luxuriant lifestyles, it's not a matter of I'm jealous of that person because I want what they want. There's something much deeper and more visceral. There's a sense that's rarely articulated. Most people are completely unconscious of this. But there's a sense that I'm not as prepared to survive what may be coming in the winter as that person is. And that freaks me out. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could devote our entire podcast to discussing this particular thing. But I think there's a lot, there's a lot of social science that exactly. indicates that people are, people are pretty status conscious, too. But... Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm, what I'm saying is that I'm absolutely agreeing with you. And I'm saying that the foundation of status consciousness actually has a survival, oh, a survival instinct. Oh, absolutely. Right. And it, this is baked into our DNA, which is it's why economic policy matters so much more in human terms than it does if you look at it on a spreadsheet and think, yeah. you know, 
Like why, you know, this view that, you know, well, let them eat iPhones. Uh, it just doesn't work, right? It's not enough to give people an iPhone. They actually want to feel like they're doing reasonably well relative to others. And that's why inequality is so dangerous to democracies. So given recent events, you know, as sad as it may be, folks like you and us who have been warning about this for a very long time are now both in a position of having to say, we told you so, but also, uh, you know, I think it's really important to be pointing the way towards solutions. So let's, let's talk about that. Like, where should we go from here? Eat the rich. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much Seriously. it. Yeah, I, I don't mean it, you know, literally, but um, the, 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 there's a very simple solution that Franklin Roosevelt imposed it in the 1930s. You raise the top tax bracket up to 90% or even 74%, which is where it was when Reagan yeah. came into power. Uh, anything over 50% seems to stabilize economies very rapidly and diminish inequality. So you raise that top tax bracket, you, you raise the, the top brackets for the inheritance tax, uh, the estate tax that Teddy Roosevelt uh, put into place back in the, in the first yeah. decade of the 1900s, and you institute a wealth tax. Um, now, with regard to the wealth tax, there's a, a two-step thing here. Most Americans, when they when you say wealth tax, they think, oh, my God, you're going to tax things that I own, my wealth. Uh, that's terrible. We can't do that. We never did that in America. That's the kind of feedback you get. But the fact of the matter is I pay a wealth tax every year. The largest store of wealth that I have is my house. Yeah. And that's true of most middle class Americans. Right. And every year. I pay here in, in Portland, I think it's around 4% of the value of my house, I pay in property taxes. Right. That's a wealth tax. But there is no similar wealth tax on the largest store of Charles Koch's wealth, you know, his money bin. Yeah, what we need to do is have a money bin tax, basically. You know, if, if uh, you know, the roughly 70% of American families who own their own homes and the other 30% who are renting, um, you know, excluding homeless people, who are also paying property taxes indirectly in their in their yeah, rent. Right. We're all paying a wealth tax every single year that's well over 1% in almost every state in the country. Correct. Then why don't we ask billionaires to pay a wealth tax on their largest share of wealth, whatever that may be. So I have never heard that framed in that way and I must say that's a very powerful narrative. So Say you're Joe Biden and you have a slim lead in the House, 50 plus one votes in the Senate, and you have decided to make dismantling oligarchy your number one priority. What what could you realistically do first? I think the three things that I just laid out, um, they need to be sold to the American public. Um, he needs to be doing like Franklin Roosevelt. Every week, Franklin Roosevelt did a fireside chat. Obama did not do this uh, Bill Clinton was a little better with the media, but Obama kind of just stayed in the background and was quiet most of even when even when uh, uh, Merrick Garland was being trashed by Mitch McConnell. You know, Obama could have held a daily press conference yelling about it, but he chose not to. I I am very hopeful that Biden does not try to reinvent the the, the administration that he was the number two in, yes. and instead uses, uses FDR as his role model. Or for that matter, Donald Trump as his role model. You know, speak to the American people regularly. Make your case. Make it in succinct, pithy points. I think I've made some of those points. Every working class American pays a wealth tax. Why not the billionaires? Uh, you know, uh, why why is it that 
the, the share of uh, income paid in taxes for average working people is, you know, billionaires pay well less than five or 10% of uh, their share of income compared to the average person. The numbers are even different from that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't just pull numbers out. But, you know, and basically just boil this stuff down and pitch it. Bernie does a really, really good job of this. Yeah. And Joe Biden sh should bring him in as an advisor, frankly, because if we don't deal with this inequality crisis that we have in the United States, we're going to continue to have, and you're going to see even worse versions of our lack of trust crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And America loves a billionaire, though. Like, I think it was last week, uh, Elon Musk passed Jeff Bezos to become the richest person in the world. And it occurred to me that if I were to start a Kickstarter to raise funds to get Jeff Bezos back above Elon Musk, there would be a non-zero number of people who would donate to that fund. It, it seems to, to me to be a uniquely American issue. Is there anything you think that people can do to directly convince people that what is in the best interest of billionaires is not in their own best interest? Because anybody who's gotten into a fight online can tell you that people love to carry the water for billionaires. Yeah. Well, I think just saying, saying it the way you just said it is, is a good start. I think that we have this Disney view of kings and kingdoms and great wealth, you know, which is the American analog to that, that needs to be that bubble needs to be punctured that myth needs to be broken up if that makes sense i'm not sure exactly how to do it but i think that our media the way that our media characterizes great wealth with shows like you know billions and things like that doesn't quite capture the reality of it no for sure not you know i'm just interested in your perspective on this our podcast is devoted to mostly the way in which the economics profession has aided and abetted this crisis over the last 45, 50 years. The way in which neoclassical economics and it's the, the sort of weaponized ideological extension of that, which we call neoliberalism, has infected the brains of people both on the right and left and left us with a set of policies that lead inevitably that, that, you know, neoliberalism is effectively a protection racket for the very rich, as is neoclassical economics. And I'm just, I'm interested in, in how you see that, like how, how you think about the connection between that and oligarchy. Well, there's a feedback loop there that produces a, a, a cycle uh, that kind of starts spinning at the ground level. And then as it spins faster and faster and gets wider and wider, goes higher and higher up, you know, kind of like a helicopter. And, and that cycle is that you get very, very wealthy people um, who discover that there are some economists who are saying things that would help them enhance their wealth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the example in my mind is uh, Joe Coors and, and uh, the, the Scaife family and Chicago School Economist. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, yeah, Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman and, and, and that crowd right. and they're... Here's all Milton Friedman. Yeah. He's like this obscure guy in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. He's considered a crackpot. And he starts getting funded by some very rich people. And they raise his profile. And, and I mean, even to the point of, of uh, you know, funding a deal with a, with a bank to create a, an economic prize in memorial of Alfred Nobel that has nothing to do with the Nobel Committee in Norway. Um, this is out of Sweden. So that they can give a Nobel Prize to Milton Friedman. I mean, it's just it, it, so 
the billionaires find their economists, their economists then get lifted into the public sphere and their ideas get promoted by the billionaires and their ideas cause changes in tax policy and economic policy that shovel more wealth to the billionaires. Yeah. And so now they don't have this one economist or even a small group of economists. Now you've got a situation where the Koch network for the last 30 years has actually been funding departments of economics and political science in colleges all over the country. And, yeah, sure. and, and then you're producing brand new economists and lawyers and politicians who believe that oligarchy is actually the best form of government, which is yeah, basically right. the sales pitch that Friedman was putting forward. You know, it's a variation on Thomas Hobbes's notion that without the iron fist of church or state, mankind will revert to his natural state and life, na life will be nasty, short and brutish. And, you know, they're just applying that same logic with lots of fancy dressing on it. And again, you know, that that cycle needs to be broken or it's it's ultimately self-destructive. I think a good metaphor is football. If the NFL was to decide that whichever team in a particular game had more money would be able to have more players on the field instead of having to travel 10 yards to get a, to get a down, they would only have to travel five yards. In other words, if the rules were different for the richest team versus the poorest team, you know, at first it might seem interesting. And eventually you'd end up with just a couple of teams that were very, very rich. And that kind of might seem interesting. But the, the game itself, the appeal of the game would completely collapse. And eventually football would eventually collapse. I mean, it would go through what would appear to be kind of a golden period. And then it would collapse. And frankly, I think that's where we're at right now. Because the rules of the game of economics are defined by politics, which has been captured by one particular economic player, the very, very rich and large corporation, two, two economic players. And, you know, history just shows that doesn't stand. I mean, the, 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 that's the other thing, too. I mean, in 1770, there was a massive depression in the English-speaking world that was a result of the French-Indian Wars ending two years earlier. And there was no more demand for war materials. And, and just, I mean, there was a massive depression in 1770 that led right to the American Revolution. There was a massive depression in 1856. Abraham Lincoln had been paid for his work by a railroad and he literally ran to the bank to turn it into cash because he knew this was coming. The next day, most of the banks in America closed in 1856, or at least in Illinois, and uh, where he lived at the time. And that uh, panic of 1856 led right to the Civil War. You've got the Great Depression. The Great Depression hit the United States and Germany equally hard. We had FDR as a, a president, but Germany had Hitler. Boom, World War II, you know, caused by a depression in large part. And here we are again. So, uh, you know, these things are self-correcting, but the correction process can be brutal. We ask all of our guests why they do this work. We've had you on the show before, and I've asked you that question. So I thought I'd get a little more specific. Why did you choose now to focus on, on oligarchy? Because I feel that we are at that crisis point. We're at that 1929, 1856, 1770 turning point that to a large extent is being defined by uh, economics and the oligarchic class. And if we are well-informed about how these things work and, and lessons of history, we can make it through. Um, if we're not well-informed, then we end up like Germany did in 1935. Yeah. Given recent events, I, I, you know, I think we should all be very sober and um, 
it's not impossible that these are end of days. <laughs> no, we are we are at the cusp. We're close to the cusp of a major turning point in American history. The question is, which way is it going to turn? Yeah, and I'm I'm trying that it should turn in in the direction of the ideals of the of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, rather than Thomas Hobbes's vision of, you know, you've got to have a brutal state in order to maintain social order. Yeah, which is obviously Trump leading to. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank um, you so much. And, yeah, and thank you for your work, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thank you for having me. Anytime. Yeah. That was a super interesting conversation. Didn't have a lot of nice things to say about my people, though, did he? <laughs> no, no. Are, are you okay? Are your feelings hurt a little bit? Or? <laughs> yeah. Did he say, was it eat the rich? He did say eat the rich. Yeah, that's a direct quote. Yep. Oh, I hope golly. you're moisturizing because... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Be a little gamey. Yeah, exactly. First... Marinate them in buttermilk for 24 hours, <laughs> then eat them. <laughs> so how do you feel about that thesis statement? You know, the sad part is, and, and again, you know, when, I, when I'm thinking about this stuff right now, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about it in the context of what happened at our nation's capital and just the extraordinary seditious behavior of so many Republicans and, and the, just the fact that, you know, like I've been saying for a long time, the pitchforks are coming. And what's really top of mind for me right now is that, I, you know, I've been talking about this stuff and warning people for a while that, you know, a pluralistic, democratic, stable civil society can't survive if inequality gets too extreme. And the truth is that with virtually no exceptions, my peers do not, will not face this. Mm -hmm. Like I've talked to dozens, maybe hundreds of wealthy people about engaging in projects or programs or politics directly that will begin to recast how we organize society. And I cannot tell you the number of plutocrats I've talked to who are like, do we have to save the middle class? Absolutely. But when you tell them what's necessary to do that, like pay people more or pay higher taxes, they're like, oh, fuck that. Well, I didn't think you mean that, right? <laughs> like, that's crazy. <laughs> what's incredibly depressing is that otherwise intelligent people don't have the psychological capacity to recognize that the system that has so benefited them and has created these pathologies, like that these things are connected, that the people who have benefited the most may be responsible also for the pathologies, right? Uh -huh. They simply cannot bring themselves to believe that in order for the country to do better, they may have to do slightly worse, mm -hmm. right? It's just, it's so, it creates so much cognitive dissonance that they can't bring themselves to accept that. And to be clear, the doing worse is not like, you know, moving into a smaller house or no. anything like that. 
No, they, no, it, it involves absolutely no trade-offs in terms of how they live. But yeah, you know, the idea of paying more taxes or having to pay your people enough to get by without food stamps. And, uh, you know, I guess what it does lead me to is that if you really do want to solve this problem, you are actually going to have to eat the rich. It is probably true that every billionaire is a policy failure in a democracy. Like, I can't remember who said that. I think it was one of AOC's yep. people, but it, it's probably literally true. <laughs> and that's just really depressing because you want to believe that the people at the top could see themselves to more directly participating in keeping the whole society together, even if it involved some direct trade-offs. And they can't. I can tell you for certain that I've talked to like jillions of them. And mm -hmm. there are a couple of notable exceptions, not very many, but you know, they think that if they vote for Democrats, that's that's as far as they need to go. But if we're honest with ourselves, there is no, not yet any direct evidence that Democrats will solve this problem. Well, yeah. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're recording this now before Joe Biden's inauguration, to be clear. So, uh, okay. But, yeah, but it, certainly if you look over the last 40 years. Sure. Yes. Yeah. There's not a lot of great evidence that the Democratic Party is going to effectively become the, I mean, believe me, I mean, Paul, you know, like we're Democrats and- <laughs> I'm super, we're super involved in that, give a lot of yeah. money away to Democrats and all that stuff. But the truth is that if the people don't organize directly around making these changes, then the Democratic Party is unlikely to be the only place where this change comes from. So anyway, I don't know. I just, it is definitely, I think everybody in the country who has a brain is reflecting and yeah, buy some I buttermilk, I guess, would be my <laughs> advice. <laughs> We've really gone on a journey uh, today, and I think that to better understand how we wound up here and how our opinions are changing about oligarchy and the rich, I, I think you should definitely check out Hidden History of American Oligarchy. Uh, it's part of a series of these books that he does. The research is really incredible. It's written in very simple language, but it's full of all kinds of great information about America's history and it's available where all books are sold, although I personally would recommend you bought it from an independent bookstore rather than Amazon. <laughs> Next week on Pitchfork Economics, we're going to answer all your questions in another Ask Me Anything episode. Looking forward to it. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.